Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Thank you so much for all the lovely messages about the interview with Julian Havilland, who was on the podcast yesterday as part of our series of interviews with former political editors of the Times. If you listen to the episode, you'll know that Julian sadly died a month after I carried out the interview. But some really nice messages from listeners, but also from Julian's family, who were really pleased to be able to hear his reflections on an extraordinary career in journalism. Coming up on today's episode, episode three of the political editor, Sir Peter Riddle, who was briefly political editor in 1991, but political commentator for the Times for several decades, reflecting on the fall of Margaret Thatcher, why you shouldn't have underestimated John Major and the rise of New Labour in that period in the early 90s. It's a really fascinating chat coming up with him in just a moment. But first, as ever, let's take a look at the news with the columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, now normally on a Wednesday we'd have Alibert. Still no Alice Thompson. Where is Alice Thompson? Don't know, not sure. Have we seen... It's three weeks now, Have you seen her? Maybe she's on holiday with Nadine Doris. Could be. It's a long <laughs> holiday, Alice. Come back. Eight, seven, treble two. Start your message with the word times if you've seen Alice Thompson <laughs> on holiday. Uh, Robert Crampton is here, though. How are you? I'm good, Matt. Yeah, I'm fine. All good. I was listening to you and Phil Tinline chewing the fat while walking around Vienna last week. With Patrick Maguire. Well, you were with yeah. Patrick. I, yes. I wasn't no. in Vienna with Patrick. No, no. You were, uh, that's great that you got up to that on your I holidays. Well, I did the most <laughs> Patrick Maguire thing ever. I went to the museum in Vienna where you can see the Franz Ferdinand car. Oh, brilliant. 1914, yeah. 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 It's got his car there with a the bullet hole on the side. They've got his uniform laid out with the bullet hole. On my first trip away with my future wife, we went to Prague and I said that we've got to go to this place called Theresienstadt, which is a few 30 miles or so out of town to see the dungeon where Gavro Principe was, uh, oh, man, if that's yeah. how you pronounce it, yeah. the guy who shot Franz Ferdinand, yeah. was incarcerated. Yeah. So, what a romantic I am. <laughs> well, what a trip down memory lane this is. Uh, let's bring in Hadley Freeman, whether she likes it or not. Hi, Hadley. Hi, Matt. Hi, Robert. <laughs> Hi, Hadley. Uh, good, good to have you here. Um, uh, let's talk about this extraordinary story in The Times today from Fiona Hamilton. Uh, Chinese spy targets UK officials on LinkedIn. Guy called Robin Zhang. He's not. Well, he's, he's not, not caught. He's, no, not he's caught. lots of things. Well, um, I got I got panicked because there used to be a guy who worked on social media on Times Radio called Robin Zhang. Right. And I thought that's but this guy's hiding got, in plain sight. This guy's he got was so many. Caught, yes, yeah, yeah, he's got it's so many names. Right. We will all we'll all have heard of. But, know yes. somebody called that Robin Cow, Lincoln Lamb, John Lee, Eric Kim. Yeah. And basically, the idea is he just sits at his desk in China, yeah. firing off. Hi, you seem to be big up on. Yes. <laughs> Send me all your documents. Send me all of your documents. <laughs> yeah. Um, just a further confirmation, Robert, as to why you shouldn't be on LinkedIn or any social media platforms. Yes, which is uh, which I'm not. And uh, I was reading the comments, some of our comments below the line today. Uh, there was one guy who talked about precisely this, security through obscurity, he calls it, which I thought was quite a bit of a mouthful, but actually quite a nice phrase. Uh, you know, don't just don't do it. It's a bit pointless. If you're going to uh, get offered a for the job or need a new job, you can probably go and get one without being on LinkedIn. Yeah. I mean, that's the... I suppose the problem with Hadley, it's such a... I mean, part of me sort of admired them. It's such a brilliantly straightforward thing. Mm. You just put in... Somebody texted in earlier saying that because there were literally groups, you know, you, you advertise yeah. your, your specialism. You say, I, I have internal... I have knowledge of the internal workings of the defence industry yeah. in Britain. Yeah, and I'm willing to tell Tick! You. He just puts that in, fires a thing off slap up meal and a flight to Beijing and you're away. You've got to sort of admire their their, their industry. 
Yeah, I'd also just think that this probably happens all the time, given that wasn't it Matt Hancock and Quasi Quateng who were caught earlier this year accepting 10 grand a day or something from some non-existent consultancy firm. So clearly this is what happens all the time now. It's just people reach out to high ups online. Sorry, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to to punish you for saying reached out. I am American, though. I feel like that is excusable. Yeah. It's a very LinkedIn. It's a very LinkedIn thing to reach out. American. Circle back. <laughs> Sorry, we'll circle back on touch that. Happy. Carry on. Touch, I'll touch base on that one. Yes, please do. Uh, so I just think the fact that we hear occasionally about these ones that go wrong means that it happens loads all the time. But I'm amazed. If anybody got in touch with me online and offered me loads of money, I would assume it was a scam. I'm amazed that all these people kind of say yes. Yeah, it's this, if they want your money or if they're offering you money, then. There's it's no, clearly a scam. Yeah, no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at my my LinkedIn. Um, have you been offered money? Uh, have <laughs> I been offered? No, but there's just a lot of load of rubbish on there. Um, Why are you on it? I can't remember. I think just some. <laughs> I genuinely don't know how long I've been on there for. Um, uh, and I'd never use it. Thank you for. I know exactly my... how long I've been on. I joined when I moved back to New York in 2008, and everyone in New York told me I should be on LinkedIn, and I never mm. looked at it since. But this does totally justify how I ignore the 10,000 notifications I get from LinkedIn every day. So I've masterfully ev evaded all the Chinese spies trying to get in touch with me. Hang on, Is I've it... got, I've got, I've just, I've got a message here. It's a couple of weeks ago. Is Dear it Matt, Robin Zhang? Thank you for accepting my invite in, on LinkedIn. We provide specialist security and intelligence services. That's him. <laughs> for some clients, that means discreet special investigation or enhance non-conventional due to diligence for others. Ooh, this is a uh, specialist range of cyber services has been developed over the past 14 years. Please, please get in touch if you think we can help you. Did you accept their invitation? Though? Well, possibly. <laughs> I think every so often I look at it and I think, oh, I've got, I'll just accept all those. Yeah. Well, you I'm, should do the opposite. You should look at it every so often and not accept. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that advertisers like you are reaching their business goals with LinkedIn ads? I'm not, Jeanette. I'm not. I don't no. know what you're talking about. <laughs> What should the, what should we what should we do about this, Robert? Uh, well, don't be on LinkedIn uh, and uh, punish people who give away state secrets uh, to the Chinese <laughs> Ministry of State Security. I mean, in a way, it's quite heartening. I mean, no, I'm sure they're up to more sophisticated things. But if this is the extent of their sophistication, one guy sitting in an office in Beijing with an yeah. algorithm firing stuff off. Uh, and as another, as one reader, I think as another reader, some security expert put it, he's probably just trying to fulfil some kind of metric on his, on yeah. his, on it, just saying, I've, 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 you know, like you do, yeah. I've fired off this X amount of. Uh, I mean, it's a very unsophisticated trawl, isn't it? And people would be foolish to fall for it. But I guess people, their eyes light up at the prospect of a, some money? easy money. I've just had a LinkedIn request uh, from producer Erin. So uh, I'm going to take your advice, Robert, and decline. Yeah, that. Not, <laughs> that. Trust her. not interested in that. I'm trying to get my <laughs> secrets out of me. Uh, <laughs> definitely not doing that. Uh, right now, here's an interesting thing. How do you answer the question? Do you want to be leader of your party? Which obviously comes up all the time when there were, mm. you know, which will be coming up a lot again, possibly soon in the Conservatives. Uh, Andy Burnham, as we all know, is the mayor of Greater Manchester, uh, was asked, "Do you want to be leader?" And he said in an interview. If a path opens up in time, then of course, but I'm not going to turn away I'm not going to turn away from that. I think that there potentially is one last go at Westminster somewhere, mm. but I want to be clear about this. I would only be going back to enact what I've talked about today. Which, you know, if a path opens up in time, it's almost like a Doctor Who thing. I mean it's not yeah. quite as ridiculous, of course, as <laughs> Boris Johnson's famous response to this same question. I've about as much chance of, of being you're reincarnated as an olive. 
Uh, which it turns out, uh, and he had loads yeah. of them, didn't he? Elvis yeah. on Mars and all that sort of yeah. thing. Um, Hadley, is there ever a good way to answer that question? Um, well, I kind of admire him for at least being honest about it. I hate it when politicians clearly lie about this sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I think the the sort of the diplomatic thing to say is, of course, I would you know it's any Labour politician's dream to lead their party, but I fully support Starmer. Mm. Blah blah blah. Isn't that the best way? Rather than lying, go, oh no, it's never crossed my mind. I didn't go into politics for power. Heavens for <laughs> Yeah. He said a bit more than he needed to because there is an accepted way of doing it, saying, yeah. you know what, well, it's a big, big, wonderful... Um, well, know, the correct it, answer in yeah. this particular case is to say, I'm the mayor of Greater Manchester and yes, Keir Starmer's going to be prime no, minister. There is no vacancy. So it doesn't matter. There is no vacancy at the moment mm. and yeah. all that. Uh, so he went a little bit further than that, which I guess was uh, deliberate. And you, so, you interviewed him not that long I did, ago, and he didn't it? say that. No. So I'm obviously not a very good interviewer. He didn't say that. <laughs> but also, his whole shtick has been, Westminster's bit, yeah. terrible. Yes, I'm, and I, I'm from t- North. Yes, and I'm all about the Manchester tram system. Yeah, and because uh, <laughs> I didn't, I said to him, you know, you could have been thinking about being foreign secretary or home secretary yeah. or whatever next year. And he's and I, I think he said, yeah, but I'm. This is this is just as good, which is kind of what he's got to say. Yeah, but this went a little bit further, so maybe he's maybe he's hankering after. Uh, you know, getting wider pastures. Or, yeah. yeah, and just fuel it. Or maybe sort of thinking, well, you know, kiss, it's just kiss, putting it out there. Just putting it out there again. Yeah. Uh, Hadley, one of the really striking things is how bad the relationship is between Keir Starmer mm. and, and Andy Burnham. Yeah. Andy yeah. Burnham's about the only person that Keir Starmer publicly takes the mickey out of. Andy Burnham was on the show not <laughs> that long ago and said, but I asked him about all the briefings mm. against him from Starmer's team. He said, just leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's quite an odd it's odd timing as well for him mm. to drop such a heavy hint of wanting to be in 10 Downing Street given that we're all sort of assuming it's going to be Starmer mm. relatively soon um, he's definitely not angling for a position in Starmer's cabinet which would be the obvious stepping stone if that's really what he wants in the end um, so yeah it's strange to sort of start picking a fight essentially with the future PM yeah it does seem it does seem a little bit unusual to, to that to be the, the, the approach the other thing he talked about was uh, if he did become Prime Minister, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, was he'd abolish whipping. Whipping? Whipping. Oh, see, I thought I was talking about something else. Oh, right. I thought, surely we've got rid of that. (laughs) Yeah, no more whipping of small children to get them up chimneys. Oh, dear. No, whipping, the whipping system in Westminster, because he's got the, his whole thing is that how terrible the Westminster is. People always say this when they're not in Westminster. Exactly. This is a man Mm. who was a special advisor and Mm. then a cabinet minister for years, and now apparently Westminster's terrible. But you'd get nothing done if you abolished whipping. No, whipping's a pretty good idea, really. It's, uh, it keeps the it keeps <laughs> keeps Commons in line, and otherwise they'd be all they'd be doing terrible things like voting with their consciences all the time, wouldn't they? <laughs> Which is, I mean, nothing, nothing would nothing would happen. The intellectual level of debate would rise, but the actual process of lawmaking would become very complicated. <laughs> but also, we do need. To, I think it would, uh, politics would be much better, Hadley. I think if most normal people didn't think about it between elections, that you, they don't. The, the whole country. No, but the whole country. Large oh. parts of the country have been radicalised by yeah. Brexit. I oh yeah, mm. and we spend much, far, far too much time with everything. Then being. Um, you know, just, just, you know, instead of the nuance or, you know, cross-party working and all that sort of stuff, everything becomes much more tribal. Um, uh, and actually, it'd be much better if you could just vote for a, a, a pig and a red rosette. They'd go off and vote the way you were expecting. Yeah. Um, I think that's much better. We don't want MPs voting with their conscience because most of them are dreadful, Hadley. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really think that. Um, uh, I like your wallpaper, Hadley, by the way. 
Oh, thank you. Oh. Thank, thank you, Robert, for noticing. Appreciate it. <laughs> I can't see it now. because Oh, there She's we go. Oh, oh, it's very yeah. nice. Sort of floor. floor. Yeah. It's a lemon tree, so I can pretend I'm on holiday in Spain, basically, while oh, I'm in my... Oh, that what it is? Okay. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, have you got more wallpaper? I bet you've got really expensive wallpaper. No, I haven't got really expensive wallpaper. In fact, we don't, <laughs> I don't we have one. We've got exposed brick. Ah, oh, of course you have. Because we live in Hackney. Yeah, of course In a semi-industrial <laughs> look. <laughs> Yeah, exposed brick. Is that still in? No, it went out and it might be back again. It might be back again. Yeah. What have you got on the walls? We've got lots of pictures. Polit- political posters? Yeah, a few old political yeah, posters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Solidarność. Yeah. 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 Got some good ones I have. Yeah. yeah. Who killed Blair Peach? <laughs> that was a classic. What's that? Blair... Oh, I don't know what that is. It was I'm, a march I'm in, sorry I'm not Patrick McGuire. It was a march in Lewisham, I think, in 1976, 77, anti-racism march. Blair Peach was a teacher from New Zealand who got whacked on the head by a special patrol group uh, and died. Wow. And it was uh, called Celebra for the uh, the left at the time. And you've, With, got, you've got an original post on the wall? I have indeed, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Have you got any original political memorabilia, Hadley? No, but I do have a collection of really high shoes next to me that I bought that I can't wear. Is that equivalent? So I have my stiletto collection. No, this is, oh, you, they oh almost my. match your wallpaper, those. Yeah, I use them all as bookends. So there's shoes I bought in my 20s that are too heavy, that are too high for me to wear. So now oh. they're my bookends. That's a good idea, using a high heel sh- <laughs> shield as bookends. I, that is a, that's a cracking idea. Hadley I, used to write about fashion, though, didn't she? I'm guessing she didn't yes, play... Yes, I, I, I remember that. Yeah, she didn't write... I don't when know, I she first played, moved to London, yeah. used to read The Guardian and yeah. Hadley telling me what I shouldn't be wearing. Got free shoes, I think. <laughs> yeah, a load of free shoes. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. not allowed free stuff at The Guardian. Very against free stuff at The Guardian. Oh, okay. And fun, of course. Yeah. Yeah, high yeah, yeah. shoes would be a bit too much fun, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Andy Burnham wears eyeliner while we're on the subject? <laughs> He does. Oh, I've wondered about his eye thing. He's, Is he yeah. wearing mascara? You've interviewed yeah. him, Robert. Tell yeah. Well, no, he was on Zoom, and uh, I mean, he's uh, he's categorically denied it in the past because somebody has asked him in the past. I think he just got nice eyes. Even he has got a lovely eyelashes. He's got lovely eyelashes. Camel, camel like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd kill for eyelashes like that. Would you? Yeah. <laughs> The only thing on the radio. Just, I was going to say, let's, let's try and bring this back to something serious. So the next thing I've got to ask you about is the Waitrose meal deal. Oh, uh, good. I have really strong opinions Good. Here. Wait, Waitrose is <laughs> catching up with its rival and offering its own meal deal. Uh, but apparently they've done a survey and Britain's favourite sandwich is the prawn mayo sandwich. Hadley, go. <laughs> so I know it is incredibly annoying when parents of young children um, just come on and say, why isn't everything servicing the needs of me and my children? But the <laughs> thing that I want to get to in this story is that Waitrose has all these fancy sandwiches, which is something that Pret and all these other sandwich places used to do. Now, I have three still very small children. They do not want hoisin duck. They do not want bacon, lettuce, and something with herby mayonnaise. Mm. All they want is plain ham, plain cheese, or plain ham and cheese. And or, you or jam. Buy those. <laughs> yeah, or plain chicken. You yeah. cannot buy those anywhere on the high street now, and I, it's now become a problem. I agree. So that is my that is what I have to say to the country about sandwiches. I'm with, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, what about sugar and crisps, which is what we grew up on? Didn't do us any harm. Sugar in crisps? No, it was sugar sandwich with crisps in. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, in Hull in the 1970s, times were hard. Are you sure you're not imagining no, I, that? Yeah, I'm making it up. I had it well. I maybe had it once. Well, no, I didn't have I've those. Heard it, of, but I, 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 we, I've, I've heard of sugar in, sa- in yeah, bread. sugar sandwiches sugar or crisp sandwiches. sandwiches. I think putting the two together might. Yeah, be maybe I've, maybe I've, that's a false memory. Oh, and put the, putting the bag of salt in your crisps. Yes, you know, salt yeah, and shake. Yeah. Oh, but no, I think uh, 
I had this right, and the sandwiches are very increasingly complicated and increasingly expensive. Yeah, uh, and uh, your classic ham and cheese or cheese or yeah, that will do for most people. Yeah, egg mayo. Yeah, yeah. You need to be careful, egg though. You can't take that back to the office. Stink the whole. No, place. yeah, you do have to. Yeah, You've got to eat it in the breakout area if you have one <laughs> or the loo. It's <laughs> not nice. Now, what do you do when your street is a mess? Do you wait for someone else to come and sort it out? Or do you do it yourself? Robert's been writing about st- his own... <laughs> what, just to, well, first of all, you've, you've basically gone full Rod Stewart, haven't you? Here yeah. is Rod Stewart repairing his own potholes, saying he couldn't get his Ferrari down the road. Yeah. This is the state of the road here where I live in uh, Impalo. And it's been on this place People are smashing their cars up. And the other day there was an ambulance for the first time. My Ferrari can't go through here at all. Yeah, I think Rod's yeah. engineer could have done with better... With better. Oh, that's, that's probably enough of Rod Stewart's big shovel. Explain what you've been doing in your road. Well, taking my inspiration from Rod, but yeah. without the Ferrari, yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I've been doing it for years. Yeah. Uh, I tidy the bit of street in front of my road, sweep yeah. it. My wife clears the snow and ice when it's snowy, snowy and icy. I did, but I read your comment. It did strike me. You, you were the sort of fair weather... Uh, yeah, Nicola you, really likes doing Nicola the snow and ice. She likes doing the snow and ice. She loves it. Yeah, she loves it. She loves it when it's raining. Yeah. <laughs> Kids do the litter, I do the yeah. weeding, and I also have a little homemade kind of... Uh, uh, substance for yeah. my pothole filling, which is a few wood chips. Yeah. But in a, in a kind of gooey ball. In with a paste. Some, in a paste. With paste some mic, which, I then, paste. which I then stamp down. Hadley, Which, have you, do you do this sort of thing outside your house? <laughs> I have to admit, I do not, although I am very cynically minded. I do clean up rubbish, but I think it's because no. I am one of those boring middle-aged people who actually can't drive, so I don't really notice the state of mm. potholes. But I do notice um, rubbish on the road, and I do shout at people when they don't clean up after their dogs. That is my greatest bugbear about mm. London, is the number of people who don't clean up after their dogs. And yeah. I say this as a dog owner. Or who, uh, hang it, or who hang it in a tree, which is bizarre. You know, they clean it up and then they hang the poo bag in the tree. No, like the re- a Christmas like, ornament. But the yeah, reason, exactly. Like but some the weird kind of modern art. Is if you set out oh, on so the start mean, of your walk. All right, so you do it basically. I don't do this, but, right. I, do, but I can understand because, it's, because people get so cross about it. But the reason you do that is because when you set out on your at the start of your walk and your dog decides to go there, what you don't yeah. want to do is spend the next hour swinging a bag of poo around like. Well, can't you find a, a bin? Well, if you can't find a bin. So yeah. what you do, what I think what the people are doing, they hang it in the tree, thing. Well, I'll, I'll take that home when I get back. But they don't, do they? And sometimes they might not. Right, okay. That's a very charitable explanation. Yeah. Uh, what, they don't want to do, what you don't want to yeah. do is leave it on the floor because yeah. a dog yeah. might come along and interfere with yeah. it while you're doing your walk. Anyway. In ge- the general point was, I think, I mean, the more serious point, yeah. I guess, is that there's a, we shouldn't always wait for somebody else to do something yeah, wait for, for us. Sort it out. Uh, well... Um, There's a lot you can do yourself. Never mind. And if everybody did it, then happy days. Never mind filling your potholes with your own paste. A teenager who thinks his town's roads are so below par, he's turned uh, potholes into a crazy golf course. And Ben's on the line now. Hi, Ben. Good morning. <laughs> ben, uh, tell us about what you've <laughs> done to your potholes. So, yeah, so residents were complaining all over social media about them. And, like, someone suggested as a joke in the comments about, like, a street golf course. And I don't think they actually thought anyone would actually do it. So I put a sign up and declared the high street golf course officially open. And, yeah, we played golf. Uh, What's your handicap, Ben? (laughs) I don't know. Are you good at getting good? Are you improving, though? Yeah, I definitely am improving. <laughs> it is very good. So, so this is in Malmesbury in Wiltshire, and your sign said High Street Crazy 
potholes golf now open. And there are how many? So how many holes have you got? We had so many holes. We had 10, 11 holes because they were all down the middle of the high street. And obviously it was putting people off coming into town yeah. because they were damaging their wheels and that. And obviously with the local independent shops, that's not good for them because people were putting, oh, I don't want to come into the town because of them. So I had to do something about it. <laughs> Has this uh, you doing this made the council sit up and take notice and do anything about filling the holes? Well, obviously, it got quite a lot of impressions on social media and it was sent to them and stuff. And like about three weeks later, after we'd done the like the golf course, it was resurfaced and the ah. high street resurfaced, completely resurfaced. And it looks really good. Oh, well, there we are. Cool. Well done. Very good. Well done. Yeah. But that, that is community action in action. Ben, really good to speak to you. Ben Thornbury from uh, Milesby and Wiltshire. Hadley, are you a big crazy golf fan? Uh, no, but my children are, I so mean, I do spend I actually a lot crazy, of time in golf. various crazy golf centres of Tottenham. Robert Crampton and Hadley Freeman then, of course you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week if you've got a subscription, which I know you have, but if you know someone who hasn't, tell them to subscribe. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. Up next, it's episode three of The Political Editors. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now, it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, as it This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. On this episode, Sir Peter Riddle, who replaced Robin Oakley in 1991, recalling the dramatic end of the Thatcher era, underestimating John Major and Labour coming back from the wilderness. I'm standing outside, Thatcher comes out and comes up to me and says, Mr Riddle, you didn't ask your usual question this morning, you know, as if I missed school. He always lacked off confidence because he'd never been to university, surrounded by all these brilliant people who went to university, to which the only answer is, look at what you achieved. Some of it, well, one could view as slightly shallow in some respects, some of it was carefully orchestrated in media terms. But there was a sense of change. Peter Riddle, welcome to Times Radio. Um, you replaced Robin Oakley as political editor of the Times in 1991, but not for very long. Tell us what happened. Oh, essentially, my period as writing about politics is divided in two parts. One for the Financial Times, uh, which I did basically up to 1991, and then from 1991 to 2010. But I wasn't really the, a political editor in the conventional sense of being the chief news correspondent because I'd done that on the FT and when I was hired by the Times I was really being chief political commentator so there was a playing around of titles that didn't really matter Phil Webster was in charge of news for the period when Robin Oakley left I was the chief commentator doing analysis and so on and actually you, the two of you rubbed together we'll hear from Phil later in the series but the two of you rubbed together for quite a long time doing that absolutely we did it 
Oh, well, effectively, for the best part of that period, let's say 18 years of doing it together, until I um, retired from the Times and did lots of other things in 2010, after the 2010 election. We'll come on to those other things a bit later on. Just take, let's go back to 1991 when you took over. Yeah. Tory party, change leader, economic crises and infighting, Labour Party on the march, they're about to win the general election. That was interesting. I'd come back from the States. I've been in the States for three years my last job on the FT, and that's where I was hired from. In fact, by my later editor, uh, Peter Stoddard, who, who was my opposite number in, in Washington. And um, I came back uh, in the autumn of 91, and the things looked rather good for Neil Kinnock. I'd known John Major well in his rise, um, but he'd become... And I'd talked to him once or twice when he became Prime Minister, but it did look as if he was fighting an up, uphill battle. But then we had the election in the spring of 1992 when the polls got it wrong, and they got it badly wrong. They underestimated Major. And the interesting thing about Major is, is even though he got a narrow majority in seats, uh, in terms of vote, he got a, one of the highest votes the Tories have had. Um, I think more, actually, more votes than anyone ever in yeah. a general election. And the famous thing in the election was... It was the kind of doggy John Major. He was on his soapbox, and people derided it. But it went down well with the public. Paddling up to the Liberals for support is like leaning on candy floss. <laughs> Not a chance of much support from that particular quarter. And at the same time, people still had doubts about Labour. That Neil Kinnock had done a lot to change Labour, but the election results showed he hadn't done enough. And he immediately stepped down. And so it, it, it was a very strange period, because when Major won, you thought, this is a real triumph for him. But immediately everything went sour because of Europe, yeah. inevitably. And the battles over what became the Maastricht Treaty, which one doesn't talk about too much um, <laughs> from the listener's point of view, but that dominated politics for the following 18 yeah. months. But you know, immediately the gloss went over his extraordinary election victory. Coming from America back into British mm-hmm. politics, did you have a different perspective on what was happening? Could you see that John Major stood a better chance of winning than maybe people right in the thick of the bubble might have thought? Not really, because I think that, one, I'd kept in fairly close touch. Um, I remember the, uh, I was with the elder Bush in Paris at the time Thatcher fell. And I remember going to a press conference at the, at the British Embassy, which where Bernard Ingham was, and chatting to Bernard about her chances. Within two days, she announced her resignation. And so... One of the interesting things was explaining to American friends how we could do this. You know, how, uh, remember, this is in the middle of a war, the, the first Gulf War, everyone yeah. thinks of the Iraq War, but you've got to remember the original one, the, the invasion of Kuwait and the expulsion very successfully and so on. And uh, at that period, you know, Thatcher, who'd been at some distance from Bush, so it was quite an interesting perspective being in Washington, very interesting perspective actually, but the, they'd come together again because of the Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait. But they couldn't believe that, how could you get rid of a successful prime minister? And as always, people overseas don't necessarily get the right perspective on what's happening domestically. Yeah. And that's one of the things. I was in a slightly unusual position because I still kept in touch with yeah. people. British politicians coming through Washington always wanted to gossip with me. And so I kept in touch in a way. So I was less detached than I might otherwise have been. And what about John Major as a person? Mm. Because there's a whole generation of people now where the sort of the two-dimensional view of John Major is it's the grey man, his shirt tucked into his mm. pants, eating peas. But you don't get to be in quite quick succession, uh, Foreign Secretary, Chancellor, and then Prime Minister, and then win a general election, mm-hmm. without being a pretty astute politician. Oh, he was extremely astute. He's one of the most impressive politicians I knew, but he lacked self-confidence. He always lacked self-confidence because he'd never been to university. And you know, I've argued with him. I, I see him occasionally because we're both Surrey cricket fans, so I, I, I'm more likely to talk to him about cricket than politics. But 
he still has that feeling, look, I didn't go to university, surrounded by all these brilliant people who went to university, to which the only answer is, look at what you achieved. Yeah. And it's complete rubbish. I mean, interesting enough, some of the top Mandarin civil servants regard him as one of the sharpest and cleverest prime ministers and the most painstaking at doing things. But he had that doubt. It, all the time as prime minister, he had doubt. And also he was affected by a, a bitterly divided Conservative yeah. Party, which didn't help. But no, he was a, a much cooler... Also, calculating person, he was one of the most adept handlers of the press during his rise. If you asked, I mean, everyone focuses on Teddy Blair, Peter Mandelson, and Gordon Brown, but if you looked at someone who was a single person, on his own, without any entourage, cultivated the press during the 80s and 90s, it was him. He picked out some younger political journalists, he cultivated us, and it was a very smart move. He was actually a much smarter operator than people gave him credit for, but he was beset by an impossible party. Yeah. It's all about the 1992 election. One of the standout moments of that election campaign was the Sheffield rally. This is the Labour Party. This is the party that's going to win the election and win for our country. Yeah, I mean, that was one I, I wasn't there. I watched it on TV and I thought, Bit, bit over the top. It jarred at the time, and it's convenient to look back on that and say that was the reason. But if you look at the gap in votes, I think it was people weren't yet ready for Labour. They were worried about, at the time of recession, remember, this was not a strong economic time. Yeah. Um, it was a time of recession, house price collapse, interesting parallels with around now, and so on. And that people didn't feel safe with Labour for all that Neil Kinnock had done over a period of nine years. It wasn't quite enough. And were all the seeds of that sown, essentially, in the 70s, when you first started, when you were at the FT and your economics correspondent, and you had Wilson and then Jim Callaghan and all the economic problems there? Was that still the hangover, what, 10, 12 years later? I think there was, there was some hangover, and as well as, of course, the, the switch to the left under Michael Foote yeah. in the early 80s, um, the famous Labour manifesto in 83, the longest suicide note in history, as it was described, and there have been longer ones since then, of course. But the, that <laughs> sense of Labour being out of touch with reality, uh, and it was just a slow climb back. I mean, it, it took well, three general elections to get yeah. back from the low point of 83, and Neil Kinnock did an awful lot to save Labour, very bravely and, and so on. But no, it was a legacy of the winter of discontent in 78, 79, the, you know, the famous rubbish on the streets, all that stuff, combined, of course, with the enormous impact of Thatcher. I mean, you know, she was a force of nature, one, certainly one of the most remarkable people I've ever covered as a journalist. Did you feel, because she was there for such a long time yeah. and you were political mm-hmm. at the FT mm-hmm. at the time, do you feel you got to know her? Was she someone who cultivated you like others did? No, that's a very interesting point, Matt. She did cultivate editors and kind of her sympathetic economist. She knew us all, it, unlike other leaders. I mean, for example, later on, John Major, uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, um, to some extent with David Cameron, who were more contemporary, or indeed younger in Cameron's case, whom you could have a proper conversation with. With Thatcher, it was the headmistress's presence. And what a policy! Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy! My favourite story of that was in the 87 election. I'd stayed behind, there were then daily press conferences, which uh, aspects of During the election campaign, every morning, every morning, every party uh, had a weekday, press round Smith Square in Westminster, the parties, starting off with the Libs, Lib Dem- Democrats, very early, then you'd be Labour, then you'd be the Tories. And so you move from one to the other. And I'd stayed at Labour to talk to Neil Kinnock about something. And, I, and the 
Tory press conference room was full. That didn't matter because I had a couple of blokes on my team who were in there. I was standing outside. Thatcher comes out with Norman Tebbit, her party chairman, and comes up to me and said, Mr. Riddle, you didn't ask your usual question this morning, you know, as if I'd missed school. Um, <laughs> I said, no, I'm just, I explained what I've been doing. And she wanted to know what Neil Kinnock had said. So we had a conversation. Then she said, you want to know what happened at my press conference, which was a completely absurd thing <laughs> given I had someone there. Norman Tebbit was standing behind her because remember, Mr. Thatcher wasn't that, that tall. Uh, was trying to stop laughing at this absurd thing and she was waving her hand very thatcher it, it was the headmistress instructing you know that's was her relationship and so you never got that close to her but she was quite accessible in the sense of press conferences but they tend to be rather gladiatorial no yeah. harm in that but that that was her style and that's why bernard ingham who, who died earlier this year was such an important figure because he was very much the interpreter he wasn't a crony of thatcher people misjudge that he was below stairs if you think of it as downton abbey or upstairs downstairs for the older listeners he was a kind of butler as a, pre- as a press secretary, he was the one communicating, running up and down the stairs. Yeah, running up and down the stairs, interpre- very accurately interpreting her will. Yeah. And he was very much personal to her. I mean, he was devoted to her. You talked about John Major having self-doubt and that partly, you know, carrying him through. Do you think, in that period of recovering Thatcher, I mean, but certainly by the end she wasn't someone that by self-doubt. In fact, it was probably a mm-hmm. bit overconfidence that played a part in that. Was that as a result of her being there for so long? Yes, I mean, I think being there so long, I mean, a lot of people felt that you know, she should have gone after 10 years, that going on for 11 and a half she did was just too long, and she was isolated. The bunker was there. I mean, everyone I've talked to, and both at the time and subsequently, said, look, she just got isolated in there. Uh, you know, she'd lost Geoffrey Howe or Nigel Lawson first, the Chancellor. Yeah. All right, she'd been distanced from them, but they were the pillars of early Thatcherism as successive Chancellor's Exchequer. So losing them and other ministers... Willie Whitelaw was no longer around. He'd had a stroke, who'd been very much the person who, who, who supported her and helped her along on things. So she was isolated. And, and I, I only saw this at the, right at the end, because I was in the States. But you saw that sometimes her judgment was a bit strange. I mean, the end of the Cold War, which had been a great objective, she was very opposed to immediate unification. I remember being in Washington. American people, even ones who knew Britain pretty well, I was like, what the hell's going on with you people? Well, this has been an objective, yet she's kicking up trouble over it. And as I say, it was only the Gulf War which brought Bush and her together. Well, let me uh, first welcome Prime Minister Thatcher back to the United States. It's a very timely visit. So you were still out at the Times, but you weren't political editor. Yeah, you yeah. were chief political yeah. commentator. Yeah. What a period to have been covering from 92 when, when Labour lost the election, the death of John Smith mm. in 94, the rise of new Labour. Today, people say, oh, the mood around Keir Starmer and Labour is nothing like what it was in that period in the mid-90s. What was it actually like in the mid-90s to be covering it? It was, I mean, obviously there are some similarities. You had a divided party. I mean, you know, drawing parallels between Margaret Thatcher and Boris Johnson might appear very bizarre. <laughs> but there was a sense of the, the king-queen over the water. During the major years, you had still people who felt she'd been betrayed and so on. Even though I, my view is just the passage of time and you know, she lost her touch. And there are now people who think Boris Johnson was betrayed. So there's a parallel. I mean, one shouldn't take it too far. Very different, very, very different personalities, very different levels of achievement. But there's that aspect of it. You've got a, a divided government, one which is hitting problems with house prices. I mean, John Major had in, in his favour that after the immediate economic problems after uh, 1992, the economy was recovering. Um, living standards were rising, but it, it, was, a, it was a kind of uh, voteless recovery. Yeah. Um, here, living standards are being squeezed. It's much harder. 
with, with Labour, remember that it took a long time for Labour to, to recover from its 83. I mean, essentially it's 14 years. Yeah. What, what Keir Starmer's tried to do is in four to five years from a pretty low base. So there are similarities. There are similarities in the ruthlessness in which they're trying to get the right candidates in place. He lacks some of the buzz. I mean, you know, Keir Starmer, who's a talented, able man, doesn't have some of the pizzazz that Tony Blair had at his peak. Please welcome the Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Tony Blair. What do you think? doing, Tony Blair, in the 90s, really up till the 97 election, was conveying a, a sense of excitement. Now, some of it one could view as slightly shallow in some respects, some of it was carefully orchestrated in media terms, but there was a sense of change around. I mean, it was quite clear by the mid-90s there was practically no way the Tories could win that election. So it, there is a different feel, however much the polls are similar. It's not quite the same as then. I wanted to ask you about how the job of being a political mm-hmm. journalist has changed. Mm-hmm. Because, well, in 1991, you become political out of the Times. Well, you could go out for a great big long lunch and come back and write one story at tea time and that was you, you done and dusted. These days, you'd be flat out morning live blogs and emails and Twitter and rolling news channels. Can, can I push it back <laughs> a, a, ten years before that? OK. Because I think that gives the contrast. Yeah. When I started, there were three TV channels. There was no breakfast TV. There was no Sky. Tim Berners-Lee was a, 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 um, a bright spark, but not yet the internet. Mobile phones, uh, um, people had clunky uh, phones in cars. So the news cycle was, you know, as you imply, you wrote for a story for the evening main edition, say, 7 o'clock or something. Well, interestingly, interesting enough, you also wrote for later editions. I yeah. mean, I quite often in my 1980s period as a political journalist, we would be rewriting for the second edition. News would come in late. Parliament also sat late. I mean, yeah. there was no family-friendly hours. I mean, you were, you were quite frequently during the week, it would be till 10, 11 o'clock. I mean, I'm single then, probably fortunately for my relationships and later family life. You worked late, which also had a great advantage. You got to know politicians much better. Yeah. I mean, I got to know them much better than I think a lot of people do now because you really did rub shoulders with them in the evening. But that, as we say, has all changed. The technological changes have made a massive impact. Um, there's much, many of them are, are, are strong pluses, there's much more transparency, there's more openness. However, it does also make it more instant. Judgment has to be instant. You can't reflect. You can't go around and talk to two or three people. Which, you know, I, I would be talking to several people, wander around Parliament, wander around the lobby, be on the phone, but I didn't have to reach a judgment mm. within five minutes. It's interesting what you say, though, about how you'd think that technology... WhatsApp, Twitter, has increased connectivity. Mm. But because they're less human relationships, mm-hmm. your understanding and knowledge of what's going on is probably less. It can be less. And since the curse of life is the breaking news phenomenon, the belief that something new is more significant, it isn't always. And I, think that's a re- I mean, the inevitable problem when you've got 24-hour news or you look at Twitter, you could say, well, actually, what is the most significant thing when I started out, it was possible to establish significance and proportion. There were downsides. It was a very closed world. Yeah. was a heavily male world. I mean, you know, I had, had um, on the FT two deputies who were women. One went, went on to be the um, Channel 4 political editor, Ellen Goodman. That was slightly unusual in what was a mainly middle-aged, quite tight world. And when some of the criticism made of the lobby now appears to be slightly ludicrous because it was a closed world then, but it was just opened up by 24-hour news and everything we've seen since then. Yeah. So there were pluses and minuses, but it did allow more time for reflection. 
also the sense of we must run with the thing because it's on Twitter. And, and Twitter consumes itself, I think. I just ask you about what you did after you left the Times mm. in 2010. Mm. You've become a great ornament of state. You've <laughs> been a public appointments commissioner. You've been on all sorts of committees and public bodies. Yeah, well, what happened was, towards the end of my time on the Times, I felt, um, how come? I was being squeezed a bit. Um, generational, too. I mean, it goes back to politicians. You, you, your time runs out. And I thought, well, my time was running out. There's a new think tank called the Institute for Government being established. I'd be the first person to write about it, actually. And I happened to bump into the research director, and I said, how's it going? He said, well, we're looking around for research fellows. And I pointed to myself. I said, he said, we'd love to have you. And as I negotiated a, a, a deal working two days a week for the Institute for Government for my last 18 months on the Times, and three days a week on the Times. I also, the most extraordinary thing of all, my last day on the Times, I got a phone call from the late Jeremy Hayward, who was then Permanent Secretary at Number 10, saying, we're setting up an inquiry into detainees and rendition, which is mm. Guantanamo and all that. We'd like you to serve on it. I said, what? I was just packing up my stuff that day. And um, being Jeremy, I said, how long have I got to think about it? He said, now. And I decided a good thing to do. And it was the most extraordinary thing. And I also got time. Over that weekend, they made me a privy councillor, which much amused my Times colleagues. I remember they, they th- when it was announced in the comments the following Tuesday, they thought it was very funny. Probably quite right. But it, So I had that. Then I became director of the Institute for Government, ran it for four years, four and a half years. And then I wanted to move on, and the position of public appointments commissioner came up. So I applied for that, got it, and that was fascinating. I mean, I really, I mean, I'm extremely fortunate to have done totally different things in my 60s and early 70s. But I re- to get another perspective on things. I mean, you know, I, I realised my time as a journalist was coming to an end. I really enjoyed it. People say, oh, don't, you know, which do you prefer? You don't. It's not like that. You do one thing, you enjoy it, and then you do something else, enjoy it. Did, given that there's nothing political journalists love more than sitting around and pontificating on what mm. politicians should be doing or government departments mm. or, oh, they want to be doing this, or if only yeah, I was... Yeah. Uh, when you find yourself in those positions, do political journalists know better? Uh, no, i tell you what, the interesting thing is... Well, two things. One, having been in the game, uh, I was probably more discreet um, because I knew <laughs> when not to talk. So I fortunately never got myself too much trouble on that, much to the annoyance of some old friends. I often find if, if any journalist who becomes a senior yeah. spin, you know, spin doctor or something, they're, they're always the worst. I know, exactly. I mean, they I, won't I, speak at all. No, but the, actual, no the, the, the answer is political journalists, with all their contacts, on the whole get the direction right. They know which direction the submarine's going in, but they're not, on the whole, on the outside, they don't always get the exact timing right. They're on things I was involved in quite closely... On the whole, they got the fact there was a row. They didn't always get the, the details of the row or when it would be resolved. Sometimes they're ahead of the game. You know, I was being phoned up and said, X is going to happen. And I knew perfectly well X was still two or three weeks away. Or that X had already happened. I suppose it's one of those things where the first draft of history is bound to be a bit rough and ready. Yeah, but, it, but it's, it's nonetheless not bad. Not bad. I mean, you know, on the whole, a lot of political journalists still very assiduous, hardworking, and you know, when there's a row, they're not they're generally not wrong. Peter Middle, that feels like a good note to end it on. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the Pitbulls on Times Radio. Pleasure. So Peter Whittle there, reflecting on his time covering politics for The Times, will have another political editor on the podcast tomorrow. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye.